During the summer of 2013, David Brooks, who's a national columnist, was in the lowest pit of his life. He had just gotten divorced. He was lonely. He was humiliated. He was adrift. He also had a constant physical sensation of burning in his stomach and gut. He felt like he was seeing the world at the time through a muddy and distorted funhouse mirror since he was so deep in pain and shame. Every summer, though, David took a trip to Aspen, Colorado to do some teaching there and to take a hike on the top of a mountain where there was a beautiful lake. That year and that morning, he was in a spiritual frame of mind. He had been doing a fair amount of reading recently of some Christian and Jewish authors gathering information for a book he was writing on character, and he had found a small book of Puritan prayers he enjoyed, so he put them in his backpack and began his hike. When he got to the top of the mountain and reached the lake, he pulled out that book again and came upon a prayer called the Valley of Vision. The first line is, Lord, high and holy, meek and lowly. And David wrote, I looked at the beautiful and majestic mountain peaks around me, and then I noticed a little brown creature who looked like a badger waddling up to the lake. He came within two feet of my sneaker before he looked up and was startled and ran away. And David thought, Lord, high and holy, meek and lowly. The next sentence was, Thou hast brought me to the valley of vision. And David wrote, Well, there I was in the bowl formed around the lake. The next line was, Where I live in the depths, but see thee in the heights. And David thought, I was in all sorts of depths, but I could see mountaintops all around me. And the poem continued, Hemmed in by mountains of sin, I beheld thy glory. And the rest of the poem summed up the inverse logic of faith. The broken heart is the healed heart. The contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit. The repenting soul is the victorious soul. Life occurs in my death. Joy comes in my sorrow. Grace comes in my sin. Riches come in my poverty. And glory occurs in my valley. And then David, who has been an atheist or an agnostic for most of his life, wrote, I had a sensation there of things clicking into place. It was a sensation of deep harmony in relationships, that creation is a living thing, a, a good thing, that we're still being created and accepted in it. He said, I'd always heard God is the ground of our being, that he's not a big guy in the sky with a beard, but a caring moral presence that pervades all of reality, a flowing love that gives life its warmth, existence, its meaning. And on the top of that mountain by the lake, I had a sensation today that life is not just a random collection of molecules. Instead, our lives play within a certain moral order. And so I sat there and looked at the sloping hillsides around the lake and leading up to the mountain peaks, and now I imagine little moral dramas and clashes of armies like the forces of love and selfishness playing out in that mountaintop basin, and all of it held in the cupped hands of God. David then said, I wrote in my journal that day that God really does tailor himself to us. 
For those of us with a sense of not belonging, of being sojourners, he gives membership, acceptance, and participation. He then recalled the hike down the mountain. It took about an hour and a half and was marked by my giddiness. For I felt that my eyes had been opened to what had been there all along. The presence of the sacred in the reality of daily life. That was David Brooks's Bethel moment. And his life has been changed ever since. Jacob would know exactly what we're talking about. In our scripture today, Jacob is on the run. He has stolen his father's blessing from his older brother Esau due to the prompting of his mother, and Esau is furious. He is so upset and enraged that he starts thinking about killing his brother, and their mother Rebekah gets wind of this and urges Jacob to leave and spend some time with her brother or his uncle in Haran. There he will be safe. There he will be protected. There he can live. The only problem is that Haran is a 500-mile walk from Beersheba. So Jacob goes 500 miles in the hot desert, the hills and the mountains of the Middle East, to find some safe harbor, 500 miles of walking alone, 500 miles of, in the middle of nowhere, not knowing who or what he would encounter next, and 500 miles of fear, terror, and probably some unresolved guilt of what he had done to Esau. At the end of a long journey one day, he stopped for the night since the sun had set, Genesis says. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head, lay down to sleep, and he had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching heaven. And the angels of God were ascending and descending on it, and there above it stood the Lord. And he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, and the God of Isaac. And I will give you and your descendants the land upon which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth. You will spread out to the west, the east, the north, and the south. All the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. And I will be with you, and I will watch over you, and will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, surely... The presence of the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. He was then afraid and said, how awesome is this place? There is, this is none other than the house of God, the gate of heaven. Early the next morning, Jacob took the stone he had placed under his head and set it up as a pillar and poured some oil on it. He called the place Bethel, which means the house of God. In the middle of nowhere, in the dead of night, to a fugitive who's fleeing his brother for 500 miles, God shows up. God doesn't leave Jacob to fend for himself. Instead, he brings heaven's angels with him to show Jacob that God's got his back. God will look after him, and God will bring Jacob back home. You see, thousands of years ago, when this story originated, most folks had a different view about God. 
Their view came from the ziggurats, if you ever heard of that word before, that dotted the landscape. These rectangular stepped towers, which normally had a temple on the top of all the stairs, and the only folks who could step into that temple on top were the priests, or the most holy people. And in that temple of top, where they, they thought, was the only place that heaven touched earth. It didn't happen anywhere else. It was unseeable. It was untouchable by anybody else. The sacred was out of reach for most normal human beings. But Jacob's story at Bethel declares something different. For God appears to Jacob a fugitive while he's sleeping on a stone in the desert through a stairway or ladder to heaven, coming to him in a dream. And there above all the angels, God speaks to Jacob personally, saying, I am the God of your fathers, and your descendants will be numerous upon this land where they are sleeping, and they will bless all the peoples of the earth. And I will be with you, I will keep you on this journey, and will return you home. God dazzles Jacob at Bethel because he is normal because he is in trouble, and because he needs it. And the vision God gives him shows that heaven can touch any part of earth, that the sacred can be intimately involved in the regular routines of life. For the God of Abraham and Isaac cares for people like Jacob. The God of Abraham and Isaac will not abandon him, and the God of Abraham and Isaac will look out for him no matter where he goes. Jacob probably experienced great assurance that night. Jacob realized his life wasn't pointless, everything wasn't hopeless, and despite the mistakes he had made, God was still with him, for him, and wouldn't stop dazzling him with his presence. So, so, I want us to think about today, where is our Bethel? Where has God surprised you with heaven's presence knocking on your door? Where, when did the sacred invade your life when you felt alienated from everything else? What ordinary place did God turn into something extraordinary because he showed up? Over the past month, the reality of the coronavirus pandemic has gotten me down a bit for I'm one who always enjoys friends in a good crowd, whether it's at church, whether it's at the gym, whether it's at a concert or a festival. Joining friends in a crowd makes me feel like I'm a part of something bigger. And it's especially uplifting when it's directed at God when at church or being healthy like at a gym or getting excited about music or coming together as a community at a festival or a concert. But over the past month, I've kept thinking back to a scavenger hunt that Katie Ann, Zoe, and I went on on Father's Day weekend at the Cape Fear Botanical Gardens. We went because it was something we could do outside, we could distance from others, not worry about the pandemic. Wasn't that crowded, although we did see the Limbergs there who are a newer family to the church. But the goal for the day was to find 10 laminated signs, small, staked in the ground, around the gardens, which talked about how animals behave, or animal dads behave towards their kids. And to take a photo in, of, in front of them so that we could send it back to the front desk and enter into a contest. But we couldn't find all 10. 
we could only find nine. We went over that gardens for two hours and couldn't find the tenth. It was maddening. Maddening, folks. But you know what Katie Ann and I also got to do as we walked around the gardens? We got to reminisce about our wedding. For that's where our wedding photos took place. That's where our reception took place after it happened here. So we got to remember where we exchanged our first look in the white gazebo there. We got to walk across the grassy field where we had our first kiss of the day. We walked across the beautiful area where our friends and family gathered to take photos outside on that hot summer day. The photos felt like they take forever in that hot sun. And we got to see the spot where we put our dance floor outside, thinking it would surely cool off by 9 p.m., but it didn't. It was still muggy. If you danced for five minutes, you got soaking wet. But as we went from place to place and remembered the loved ones who came out and supported us, it reassured me that we were going to make it, make it through the pandemic. Even though we can't hang out with our friends as much now, even though we can't see family out of town as much now, they will be waiting for us at the end like they were waiting for us on that day, wedding day, ready to gather again, ready to catch up and laugh again, ready to dance with our child Zoe and marvel at how much she has grown. I didn't expect God to show up that day. I didn't expect God to reassure me and uplift me through so many good memories of our wedding. I didn't expect the sacred to accompany us as we walked through the garden, but that's what God did. He shows up for us suddenly on mountaintops and valleys and dreams and in gardens to remind us all that he is with us, to remind us that he is still looking out for us, to remind us that he will always bring us back home. So where is Bethel for you? What ordinary place has God made extraordinary because of his presence? Where has the sacred accompanied you unexpectedly in your life? How has the Lord touched you when you needed it the most with heaven's glory? Could be anywhere. But if it's similar to Jacob's story, it often happens during our regular routines. Almost eight years ago, I was called into Hobton Middle School in Newton Grove, North Carolina on a Monday morning, two days after Larissa Estrada, a beloved Hispanic girl in the eighth grade, had been tragically murdered along with her mother by their estranged dad, her estranged dad. Monday was the first day all of the students had come back together since that day, and I was told, along with several other pastors, to go to the media center where her closest friends were, and there I saw a sea of middle schoolers struggling to be with each other. Some were crying, some were talking, some were listening, some were separated and silent. And I felt like it was my job as a Christian pastor to encourage these kids to be with each other in that time of loss to talk to each other, to cry with each other, to laugh with each other. So that's what I tried to do. I sat next to Carol Dean, another Methodist minister, and we asked the kids to tell us about Larissa. Tell us about her unique laugh. Tell us about her soccer skills. Tell us about her gifts as a student. 
and a human being, and it got the kids talking. It got the kids laughing. It got the kids to imitate this unique shuffle dance she often did. Some also wrote letters to her out of their grief. All we were doing was encouraging the kids to be with each other in their time of loss, to build trust among themselves, to deepen their friendships, to open themselves up to loving each other and letting God move in their midst. And that lasted for about two hours. And, and then all of a sudden, there was this desire from the kids to pray. They wanted to pray. So we circled up in that media center. Kids from every race, background, and class, and we held hands. And then two teachers prayed. And at the end of the prayers, everyone said, Amen. And then there was a distinct shift in mood after that moment. The bell rang, and the kids, for the first time, slowly began to exit the media center that day. They seemed more composed. They seemed more at peace. And you know why I think that was? I think they realized that God was with them, that God was present in the midst of their pain, that God would carry them through this time of loss. Prayer caused that realization, but being with their friends for two hours on a Monday morning in the media center pushed them in that direction. God visited Jacob at Bethel when he was lonely, afraid, guilty, and down in the dumps in the desert. He didn't anticipate it. He thought he'd be left alone in his sleep, but that's not how our God works. He almost always does the unexpected thing when we need it. He almost always surprises us. He almost always comes through in a dazzling way, and he does it in ordinary places during our regular routines, like in a media center at school, because that's how our God works. Jacob would know. God came to him when he was sleeping on a stone, fleeing from his brother for 500 miles. David Brooks would know. God came to him when he was down in the dumps after his divorce on a mountaintop. I hope I would know. As God visited my family and I as we walked the grounds of the gardens during the pandemic and we reminisced about our wedding, Larissa's friends would know. For God showed up to them on a Monday morning as they grieved together in the media center. God comes to us when we need him the most. Heaven's ladder appears when all hope seems lost. The sacred invades our life when nothing seems sacred anymore. We're not left alone here on earth. We're not abandoned in chaos. We're not forsaken in grief. Heaven comes down to earth when we least expect it. God shows up in a place we've never thought was special before in a routine we've done millions of times. So my prayer for all of us is that no matter how bad it gets, is that we might look for those sacred moments in our lives, that our eyes might anticipate when heaven's ladder could come next, and remember that the most ordinary place, the most regular routine, can be made spectacular by the presence of our God. Let us pray. O oh Lord, may your stairways to heaven that suddenly appear always amaze us. And may your sacred presence refresh us. 
renew us as it always comes in regular places and ordinary routines. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would stand, if you're able.